Hello and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us who live with pain. This edition's been funded by the Big Lottery Fund's Awards for All programme in Northern Ireland. Today I'll be examining the workings of a multidisciplinary pain management team to find out how cases of people with chronic pain conditions are discussed between experts of different disciplines and how management strategies are then put into place. I visited the Craig Avon Area Hospital in Northern Ireland where the team is led by consultant in anaesthetics and pain management Dr Paul McConaughey. At the present time our, our team consists of three doctors uh, three clinical psychologists, four nurses and four physiotherapists together with secretarial and typing support as well as the interventions of a radiologist whenever we need it. We also have the support of a pharmacist uh, and radiographers. So I'm delighted that we have such a comprehensive team uh, and certainly in my view chronic pain is best managed within a team rather than by individuals. We, we don't feel we have a complete team yet Patients with chronic pain can be quite challenging. They're referred to us because no one else has managed to get on top of their pain. We've also spent a lot of time educating GPs and we have very little problems with how GPs manage things in this area. But the result of that is we now get much more difficult patients, patients who, even GPs who have more knowledge and more ability now, that they can't manage. So we're getting more complex cases, cases which have a lot of psychological and social issues as well as complex physical issues and it's for this reason that we for most patients we involve our whole team we meet up on a regular basis we discuss our patients and we decide on a treatment plan can i see how your team works you're very welcome to we're just about to start our meeting and you're very welcome we to come in and we'll give you an example of uh, a patient that we'd like to present okay so we'll, we'll start the meeting and uh, Dr. Sam Dawson, one of our registrars, has uh, done a clinic recently and would like to present one of the patients that he's seen. Uh, he has some concerns about this lady. Sam. Okay, um, I saw a 38-year-old uh, lady who for about eight years has a history of pain in her lower back. Uh, she's referred to us by her GP who's concerned that she's become a little bit depressed by this situation. Um, she hasn't responded to any changes in the medication that the GP has made. He'd like a little bit of advice um, about the use of morphine in her case and whether or not there are any injections we can perform that might help her. Um, the pain is present all the time and gets worse whenever she does housework, that kind of thing. Um, she's afraid then that if she uh, does anything strenuous, she'll be sore afterwards. Um, she's quite convinced that there's something seriously wrong with her, um, wrong with her back particularly, uh, despite the fact that an MRI scan recently uh, showed nothing seriously wrong, just some bulging discs. Uh, so far, GP has treated her with tramadol, paracetamol, anti-inflammatories, and uh, also tried amitriptyline, um, but she did have some uh, side effects. Uh, they then tried pregabalin um, and physio, neither of which uh, helped this lady. Uh, she lives at home with her husband and three children. Uh, she's struggling to sleep um, and wakes up stiff and sore, usually taking her a few hours to get moving. Um, she, uh, she lives at home on her own during the day because her children are at school and her husband's at work. Um, during this time, she's pretty inactive because of pain and because of fear uh, about being sore afterwards. Uh, she feels quite lonely and is perhaps a bit socially isolated. Um, 
<coughs> examined her today and she's got quite restricted movement, um, mostly I think because she's afraid of um, provoking the pain. Um, the tenderness is um, fairly general um, all over her lower back, um, but it's, it's mostly concentrated there. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. That's, that's a fairly comp comprehensive history, and there's, there's quite a few issues there that we see uh, quite often in, in patients uh, at the pain clinic. There's a number of things I think we can, we can look at. Uh, first of all, Nicholas, Sam mentioned that this lady, and her GP also mentioned that she's becoming depressed. Dr. Nicholas Sherlock, consultant psychologist, uh, do you think that there's anything you could offer this lady? Yes, well, I think it would be uh, very important to have a look at her depression because what we know is that depression is a significant barrier to effective pain management. Um, so I think that that's certainly an area that we could get involved in as a pain team and it would be a particular role for myself. So what I would like to do with this lady is um, maybe invite her to attend myself for assessment if she was willing to do that. Um, and during that assessment, I would take a full history in terms of her pain, but also looking at, at other aspects in terms of the impact that the pain is having on her life and obviously a mental health assessment as well. If we think that depression is a significant problem, one of the treatments for depression would be to offer her um, a number of appointments for her to attend for psychotherapy. Um, and hopefully that will help her manage her depression, which then in turn will help her manage her pain more effectively. Psychologists and doctors talk about a pain circle, mm -hmm. isn't it? Psychologists tend to like the, the terms vicious circles, and I think that in chronic pain there are a lot of vicious circles in that people um, can develop a pain problem, um, and often there can be a lot of losses associated with that pain over time. So I suppose initially when someone develops a pain, there's a hope that in a couple of weeks I'll go to the GP, maybe get some medication, and in a couple of weeks I'll begin to feel better. And then as time progresses, and then once progress, it becomes apparent that this pain it remains and it's still there and there can be a lot of confusion as to why this pain hasn't resolved why is it still here and that can have a significant impact on, on, on people in terms of mood as well and um, levels of frustration so that's kind of the start of the pain cycle where the mood can go down, there can be the sense of frustration and then potentially it can begin to impact on work, um, on social life, on uh, relationships with people in the family because no man or no woman is an island um, and we all live within a context of other people in some sort of family relationship or in friendships and pain can have an impact on all of those areas. Um, and over time, can, things can really, really spiral where people can become more and more down about their pain, more frustrated, more angry, more angry that there's not a cure for their pain, more frustrated that they can't find the right doctor or can't find the right treatment to, to take their pain away. So there can be all of those losses associated with pain, which then can impact on mood. And then we have, again, the, the fear that I talked about earlier, the fear of movement, the fear of exercise, which can lead to people becoming quite deconditioned physically and then that can have an impact then on the things that they're able to do and so it can conspire and become a vicious circle where people can become very low, very down, very anxious, very worried, frustrated about their pain and then we know that those type of emotional responses are very natural and normal but we know that they can enhance 
the amount of pain that person feels that can make the pain worse. And um, I think when I started in the field of pain about 10 or 12 years ago, I would have thought, well, it's the person thinks that their pain is worse, but the newest research would show that their pain actually is worse and that the part of the brain that processes pain, when people are feeling very frustrated, when people are feeling very angry, when people are feeling very low, that their pain is actually really worse, genuinely worse. And I suppose as you were talking as well, Sam, I was conscious of you saying that this particular lady has a fear of activity and that her activity at home is quite limited in that when her partner and when her children are away from home during the day, she's on her own um, and she's spending quite a lot of time not really being particularly active. And again, that's very, very common. Um, We would see that a lot of people who present to our clinic would be very fearful of activity. The difficulty is that people can then become very inactive and then that can, I suppose, exacerbate any pain problems that's there. And also, if she is inactive, then she's maybe not um, going out socially, which will have an impact on her depression. So for so many people, it can become like a vicious circle. And, uh, and I think that in this particular lady's case, I would see probably a role for myself in terms of the management of the, her depression, but also maybe helping her overcome some of those fears and maybe whatever social fears are there as well, which are maybe helping maintain her difficulties at the moment. Thank you very much, Nicola. One of the other things, Sam, which you mentioned was that this lady is not very active uh, and Dr Sherlock mentioned about having a fear of worsening her back pain. I'd like to ask uh, Michelle McGowan, who's a pain physiotherapist, if this lady's already been to physiotherapy, is there any point in her being seen by a specialist in pain physiotherapy again? Um, Absolutely. I think it would be really worthwhile for her to attend um, physiotherapy again. I think the the core thing that came out with me was um, the MRI scan and her understanding of the bulging discs. It suggests to me, even from the information that you've told me, that this may be playing on her mind whenever she's not moving. Is she afraid of the movement because of the bulging discs? Is she afraid that regardless of what movement she does in any particular direction, this will make her pain worse? So a core approach that I would use with her would be First of all, understanding, giving her the education of how chronic pain persists and what drives that chronic pain. And um, that would be one of the core aspects for her to understand, even to normalise the, the disc bulges, which will hopefully impact on her, on her fear and get her moving better. And even within physiotherapy, we have one-to-one treatment for those who maybe need specific exercises and will manage with a treatment approach tailored to them. But also um, one of the services that we offer is um, the pain management programme. So that's the disciplines of physiotherapy, psychology and nursing combined. And the way we work at the minute in the Southern Trust is that we offer a pain education class where all patients who are interested in attending combined therapies meet and are given information about their pain. After this session, some people are happy to manage independently just with the advice and education about self-management. Others then will go on to our multidisciplinary pain management programme and some then will undertake the pain plan, which is an approach where they're given a booklet or a work booklet that they work through under the guidance of one of the health professionals. A psychologist may be seeing them once a month for three months and it goes through all the information to help them manage their pain. So the big thing with this lady would be work, working on is getting her more confident to move by education, 
by um, lowering all our worries and our fears in relation to movement, which hopefully will interact on our depression. And we know that for mild and moderate depression, one of the three things that is offered and is recommended by the NICE guidelines, along with medication and psychotherapy that Nicola's already mentioned, is exercise and how important it is for her to exercise. So if we decrease her fears of exercise and encourage her independent exercise, that hopefully will impact on her depression as well as her pain. Can I just ask, Michelle, are there any exercises that you think this lady would not be able to do because of the MRI results? Absolutely not. I think the idea is giving her an exercise that suits her and giving her the confidence to exercise. So there's no reason at all that she can't. It's just finding what suits her and suits her best. But again, it's dismissing those fears and maybe information that she's been told in the past where she's been anxious. It sounds as if it would be very useful for this lady to attend your combined clinic, which Absolutely. I know you run, which uh, has certainly been very productive for, for this team and for, for the patients in this area. If I were one of Michelle's patients, mm-hmm. Michelle being the physiotherapist, mm-hmm. and she was having problems with me, mm-hmm. or I was not exercising mm-hmm. and having trouble mm-hmm. with that, and I said, mm-hmm. no, I can't exercise because mm-hmm. it gives me pain, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. How would you help her help me? I think that one of the best ways of kind of conceptualising that worry and thinking about it is to think about it nearly in terms of an anxiety or a phobia, and most of us will be familiar with what a phobia is, so it's like an intense fear, so people could have a phobia of spiders or snakes, and most of us are familiar with that. But I think that um, with a lot of patients, they can have really um, significant fears about activity and physical exercise and making their pain worse. So the way that we would treat that kind of thing is to kind of begin a graded exposure. So really to use the analogy with the snake, if you were very, very fearful of snakes and if you felt that you needed to overcome that, hopefully you wouldn't because hopefully you don't encounter too many snakes in your life. But if that was a significant problem for you, what we would begin to do is maybe initially start by talking about snakes and you would learn to kind of tolerate and cope with that anxiety and then we'd maybe show you pictures of snakes then maybe um, have you close to a box containing a snake and so forth until eventually you were holding a snake and really it's the same analogy that we would use in terms of management of fears of exercise so it's very very slow very gentle introduction to exercise so that people see that their greatest fears don't come to pass. And I think all of us avoid what we're fearful of. It's human nature. We avoid what we're fearful of. And really the only way of overcoming those fears are by actually doing it. So I could say to you, don't worry, that snake won't harm you, but you're not going to believe me because that's so deep-rooted with you. But the only way that you really come to um, see that for yourself is by gradually doing it. So it's not about me throwing a snake at you, it's by moving gradually through a process of exposure to that fear and it's the same with activity so for Michelle to go in and say absolutely ridiculous you're absolutely fine just go out and do the activity that doesn't work because those fears are so deep rooted so it's about a gradual graded exposure and building people's confidence so myself and Michelle the physiotherapist would liaise quite closely in doing that work. We have an idea of the impact of the pain as physio but what I really really learnt from psychology over the years is really getting down to how it really impacts on their depression, how it impacts on their mood, their feeling of self-worth, having the empathy for the patient, telling the patient that you understand is half of the battle, giving them the confidence that you can help them manage their pain. It's giving the respect to the patient 
But at the same time, knowing your boundaries and knowing that as a physiotherapist, you can help them with their managing their pain. But what I've really learned from psychology is knowing when to signpost on and saying, okay, there's maybe significant barriers here that, you know, your depression is is too high. You need to be signpost onwards. And that's presumably where a team meeting like this comes in. Absolutely. It's great that we meet once a month and if there is any patients that we are concerned about, that we can discuss them at a team meeting and sometimes just talking it out loud and having the support from the other members of staff and getting their feedback really helps and I think even the patient being able to say to them you know are you happy for us to discuss at a meeting they're thinking this person really understands the impact this pain is having on me and again then you feed back to the patient that, that you've discussed them at the meeting and then the outcome so it is it's great. There's one other thing for back pain that is sometimes used and that's a TENS machine which some people find useful Sister McInerney, who's a pain sister, runs her own TENS clinic and also makes changes to medications as well as giving a lot of cognitive behavioural advice. Breeds, would you be interested in having a look at this lady? Yes, I would be interested in seeing this lady and trying a TENS machine. Uh, TENS may well be of benefit. It's a drug-free device and simple to use. And I also would like to talk to her about self-management and stress the importance of self-management. A TENS is a TENS machine, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator. And it's a battery-operated device which can relieve pain. You see, I've got a TENS machine. They're around the size of a packet of cigarettes, really. Yes. There are four little dials on it, one with squares and one with triangles, if if I remember rightly. I have no idea how to use it other than if it's making me uncomfortable, then it's doing something good. Is that right? Not particularly. (laughs) And often that is the case, you know. So it is very worthwhile to have it explained properly because it is only when it is explained properly that the benefits are achieved. I haven't used mine for some time. I, I didn't find it particularly effective. Perhaps that's because I'm not using it correctly. But from memory, there are like paddles that you stick to yourself, or electrodes that you stick to yourself. And I guess the electricity pulse travels from paddle to paddle. And you get like a tingling effect across your shoulders or across wherever you've done it. And if you turn it up, it actually gets sharper and sharper and sharper, like like, 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 like pinpricks. Yeah, there are controls on the TENS machine. It's very simple, basically. There's the on switch, the off switch, and you can increase the pulse width or the frequency, basically, which is increasing the intensity. The electrodes, the sticky pads, are placed over the appropriate area and this tingling is delivered to that area. There's not every type of pain that we would suggest you use it for. It can work very well for muscular type pain or localised pain. In relation to... The two points that our GP mentioned, which I think we have to address specifically, uh, namely the use of morphine and the place for injections. Dr. Jacek Zubaczynski is a consultant at the pain clinic who has a special interest in spinal injections. And I'd be very interested, Jacek, if you thought there was a place for injections in the, in the management of this lady's pain from what you've heard. 
Obviously, injections uh, they play a significant role in treatment of patients with pain conditions, but as we've heard already uh, from Nicola, and, uh, Michelle and uh, Brice, it is so important to look at the patient uh, not as a, only a part of the body which, is, which suffers the pain, but to see the patient as a whole person. And in many situations, uh, before, we, before we even think about the injections, we seek opinion from, from uh, psychologists, physiotherapists or, or tense clinic. As uh, what I um, learned over these last 15 years, that, uh, that injections, however, they are really a strong and an important tool uh, in treating pain conditions. They work f far better and they are more successful if there is a combined treatment with a psychological approach, physio, and intense treatment. Obviously, if there is need for amending medication, yes, this is very important. But I would, I would like to just um, highlight the importance that injections, however, they are available in pain clinic. They are not the only tool and they are not uh, the tool that all the time gives relief. This is very important that I would like to pass this message on all the patients. Okay. Thank you very much, Jacek. So, so injections may have a role, but... We need to wait on initial assessment by our, by our colleagues first. That, that sounds reasonable. The final point that was mentioned by the GP was the use of morphine, which is obviously a very strong painkiller. We're delighted to have as a member of our team Dr. Jim McMullen, who is a, a GP with a special interest. Jim, do you believe that potent drugs like morphine have a place in this lady's case? This lady, not to use too much jargon, seems to have a lot of yellow flags, a lot of warning signs that there could be mental health problems, she sounds that she has a depressive illness, she's having poor sleep, she's tired all the time, she's having fear avoidance and possibly some catastrophization behavior, all of which would make me very reluctant to move up to potent opioids. She has been tried on cocodamol and tramadol, which are of the more weak opioid variety with poor response, and certainly my gut feeling without a proper biopsychosocial assessment of this lady would be to avoid strong opioids. I think we may be making this lady's condition worse rather than better. And of course, the long-term evidence for use of opioids in chronic non-malignant pain is very weak, particularly over, I think, over a year and a half long. The thing I teach at Queen's University of Belfast is communication skills. And I was always told that if you didn't ask the right questions, you wouldn't be told the right answers. And if you didn't listen to those answers, you would certainly never pick up on the story. And we still believe that 80% of the diagnosis will be made from the history. Examinations and scans are all very helpful, but the vast majority of our diagnosis will be made from a history taking. If you don't take a good history, you're not going to get it right. So communication skills, listening to the patients, believing the patients, listening to their ideas, their concerns, their expectations. And of course, in primary care, we're much more used to dealing with the chronic disease model than perhaps some of our hospital colleagues. And much more into the biopsychosocial aspect of chronic pain rather than, oh, drug X didn't work, let's try drug Y. Let's look at why drug X didn't work. Let's see what's going on at home. Let's find out how they're coping financially. Let's see what their mental health like. Find out how their children are keeping. The big picture, not just another tablet. Yes, but you do communication skills for health professionals. Yes. What about communication skills for patients? How should I, as a patient, speak to you? I think every patient should speak to the doctor the way they feel most comfortable. I think it's up to the, the physician to put the patient at their ease and we always talk about the golden use of silence. Ask your open that question and sit back and say nothing and see what happens. Sometimes you can be surprised, you'll get a 20 minute answer, sometimes it could be a 20 second answer, but certainly I think you should be silent and let the patient tell their story in their own words. Many patients with chronic pain will feel sometimes let down by their GPs. They have their four-minute, their ten-minute consultation mm -hmm. appointment mm -hmm. and thinking that, that the GP doctor mm -hmm. then says goodbye mm -hmm. 
and the paper gets closed mm -hmm. until the next appointment. Mm -hmm. See me again in 10 days' time, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting to see a team working mm -hmm. here. What do you bring to that? Well, again, as I say, we're used to the chronic disease model in primary care. We're used to teamwork. For example, if we use the simile of uh, diabetes, like diabetes, the doctor, the GP can prescribe the correct drugs, but he's going to need help from the podiatrist. He's going to need help from the ophthalmologist to make sure there's no eye He's going to have to maybe talk, if it was a particularly difficult case, to a diabetic specialist or a diabetic specialist nurse. We may even have to, if his control is so poor, we may even have to refer him up to the hospital for their input as well as regards perhaps injections and insulin therapies. But ultimately, the patient has to take their responsibility as well. There's no point in me giving the best of treatment and the patient then going out and not sticking to the diet, lifestyle and exercise and completely ignoring what they're told. So it's time to get everybody on board and everybody involved. And you're absolutely right, in secondary care, I have half an hour for a new patient and 20 minutes for a review. In primary care, I have 10 minutes. And it's very hard to cover everything in one 10 minutes. The one thing I will say is that as the patient's GP, I may be far more aware of their social isolation or their financial situation and I certainly will be a lot more aware of their family history of problems and what's going on so I might be in a better position to make a comment and to find out whether this is a somebody who requires more close follow-up or somebody who doesn't. You say during all these airing pain programs that you should always consult your own GP mm -hmm. or your own medical mm -hmm. professional uh, on any matter relating to your health mm -hmm. and that's what you're saying isn't mm -hmm. it you know them absolutely better we're in a than very privileged position these might be people who you've known from birth or from preconception, right the way through to their adolescence, to their marriage, to their having children of their own. You're in a very privileged position. And it's an awful lot is not on their notes. A lot of this is not on the computer screen. It's in your head. And again, I know one of my colleagues in secondary care will not prescribe an opioid without having a psychological assessment done. And that's because he quite honestly and rightly says, I've only known this person for half an hour. In primary care, we would be much quicker to make that decision because we will know about their social situation. We will know if there's yellow flag issues in the house, if there is alcoholism, if there is addictive person, if there's a gambling issue, if there's something else going on. We will probably know that. We don't have the privilege of having a psychologist to refer to for that assessment. We go on our own gut instinct and our experience from knowing the patient so long. So we'll arrange for this lady to be seen at the combined clinic of Dr Sherlock and Michelle McGowan at the Physio and Psychology and we'll arrange for Sister McInerney to see her at her TENS clinic and we'll then discuss at our next meeting and decide if there's been any progress and very importantly of course what this lady has agreed to in terms of future treatments. You've just discussed the case of a patient who I have to say is not a real patient but a typical patient. That would be a fairly typical patient with a pain problem but around that there are other psychological and social issues and the whole thing is in, ingrained, uh, they're all interlinked and trying to disentangle it does involve a team approach as you have heard. Dr Sam Dawson presented this patient to you hopefully that the team could sort out a plan really for the patient. What happens next? The next thing will be to offer the patient some appointments. Initially she will be seen at a, be offered an appointment at our combined clinic between our psychologist and our physiotherapist. Now this can come as quite a surprise to patients because they've come with a physical problem yet they've been asked to see a psychologist and patients quite often wonder does this doctor not believe me? Do they think I'm mad? Now if I had seen this patient individually I would normally have explained my reasons for this and indeed it's because I believe the patient has genuine pain and is not mad 
that I'm asking our clinical psychologist if I thought she did have a psychiatric issue or wasn't in significant pain, I would not involve our psychologist. Soon after that, or around the same time, she'll also be seen by Sister McInerney. And Sister McInerney has got many years' experience in chronic pain, not only in dealing with the physical problems, but in talking to people and working out exactly what is going on. And there may be other issues in relation to this lady's case, marital issues, for example, stress at home, financial issues if she can't work. And all of those will have to be brought to the surface. We won't have the cures for any of those, but we will have advice. And if the patient is open, then the outcome can be surprisingly good. Now, when this patient has been seen by my three colleagues, we will represent her at the meeting and we will have an update. If she has responded well, I suspect strongly that my colleague, uh, Dr. Sherlock in, in clinical psychology, will want to see this lady reasonably frequently over the course of three or four months and will perhaps suggest to the group that she's allowed to treat this lady for that time before representing her. At the end of that, she will give us an update on how this lady's doing. And that will include her quality of issues around her quality of life, depression, activities, social phobias, as well as her pain. She will then offer the group the chance to contribute, whether one of the doctors would like to see her to perhaps change the medication or consider an injection. At that point, we would be very keen to do that. Our physiotherapist, uh, uh, Michelle, will then be in a position to tell us what her function is like. And as a specialist in, in the management of a chronic pain, Michelle has particular expertise in being able to help the doctors in, on the role of injections. She'll quite often come back to us and say, look, I think a particular injection would be beneficial. And it would not be unusual for us to book the patient for the procedure after sending them a letter to let them know without actually seeing the patient and seeing them for the first day because we have that much faith in our physiotherapy colleagues who have had training in the management of chronic pain. We're delighted to be able to offer almost all injections that are available for chronic pain, whether it's simple joint injections through to implanting spinal cord stimulators. But we're careful about who we do that. And injections are part of a treatment plan. For some people, they are a big part of it. For some people, they're just a minor part. But we consider all of the options in all of the patients. My thanks to Dr Paul McConaughey and his team at Craig Avon Area Hospital in Northern Ireland for that fascinating insight into the workings of a multidisciplinary pain team. Now, don't forget that you can still download all the previous editions of Airing Pain or you can obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concern's panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk.